Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? You're listening to Recover Girl. It's a podcast all about addiction and recovery. And increasingly, it's about creativity, particularly writing, because so many addicts and alcoholics out there are creative people, are writers, want to write about their experiences in addiction and recovery or about anything else. And um, so I know so many that have become writers since they've gotten sober. So uh, if you want to know more about this podcast, go to recovergirlpod.com. You can find this on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you found it. If you like this podcast and you're not a subscriber, please subscribe and feel free to rate so long as it's a nice rating and a nice review. So what else? Oh, and I coach writers through... um, a six-month coaching program, and that's one of the reasons that today's episode is so special. Before I introduce her, I'm going to tell you this coaching program. I walk 10 writers at a time through the process of building their profile, uh, writing essays, pitching those essays, getting them published, and then writing and selling their book proposal. And one out of every 10 gets a meeting with an agent and a publisher. So we are in Session one is ending soon. I don't know when you're listening to this, but I am gearing up for sessions two, three, and four. We'll see. Alcoholics tend to be quite ambitious. And so if you want to know more about that program, go to AnnaDavidCoaching.com. And with that, I am going to introduce my lovely guest, Jenna Hutt. Hello. So this is sort of surreal because Jenna and I, quote, know each other because she's in my program and has just thrived, I have to say, and has really, you know, become a writer. And this is really exciting to me. So Jenna, I know a lot about you from reading your writing, but my listeners don't. don't. So let's introduce you, who you are, and then, you know, a little bit about your addiction and recovery. Great. Well, my name is Jenna, and um, definitely last fall, I think it was, when I heard you in my earbuds asking about, um, do you want to be a writer? You were speaking straight to my heart, and (laughs) it um, definitely felt like just divine intervention to um, become a part of the, to join the course that you're having. It's just fantastic, so super excited to be here. So glad you did, and you know, and I watched you kind of, you know, think about it. Should I do this? Should I not? Am I going to waste my money? And then really use that as motivation. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. And I was just telling Jenna before we started recording, she's a hustler. And (laughs) as a hustler, I admire a hustler. So, um, so how long have you been sober? I have been in September. It will be three years. 
So definitely in my third year of sobriety, like the timing of hearing about this course, just I'm in that stage of waking up to who the hell am I? What do I, you know, I have a brain back with being sober and I have, um, figuring out like, what am I passionate about? And just what, what do I want to do with my life? And really that voice in the back of my head about wanting to be a writer and just how, um, strong that has come up. And, and so, yeah, being sober almost three years. And so is it something that you had thought about doing before you got sober? Yes, I was writing when I was drinking. And it was definitely um, one of those like using a couple glasses of wine to feel creative. And then alcoholism progressing to the point of like, not then writing at all. Right. It is funny how it, not funny, sad, how it starts off as the great, you know, sort of writing lubricant and then. Right. Did you, would you just get sort of drunker and drunker and try to write? No, it was definitely um, when my husband had the traumatic brain injury and I would, which was what also propelled my alcoholism. Right. But that was also the... Um, using a couple glasses of wine to feel like I was accessing my feelings and then just sit down and pour my heart out onto a blog and um, write. So those blog posts that I read, some of them were not sober written. Oh, like none, none of them, them were <laughs> written sober the, the early days, yeah. And um, my writing before I got sober, well, especially when I would write when I was drunk or high, was real maudlin. It was really, and it really kind of, thought everybody was like as fucked up as I was like I would write TV specs I remember I wrote a Dawson's Creek spec where all of them were hooked on cocaine right (laughs) they're living my life (laughs) but I that's how I saw the world um so and and so you were you were born in Northern California right you live in Colorado yes so tell me and and you come from a family where alcoholism right so when I was born there my parents did not drink at all And then when they split up, they both kind of, which I was like four. And so then they kind of both went back to drinking after that. But alcohol really wasn't a big part of my life. I'd say the the first time I drank, I was in eighth grade and I drank alcoholically. I was home alone. Mm -hmm. I was babysitting my one and a half year old little brother. He was asleep. My mom had made some like whiskey cake or something to take to a friend's house. Gross, first of all, but yeah. Yes, I don't even know if that was the liquor. I have no idea what the right, liquor right, was. Right. It was something not very like, good. Yeah, it was yeah, a brown yeah. liquor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I um, just decided to try and drink it, and I drank by myself, which is interesting because that was also that was my later pattern. Yep. And um, drank a lot, got very drunk by myself. And to the point that I was hung over the next day, couldn't Did go you to throw school. Up? I don't think I threw up that. It, no, it, yeah, it was years later before I threw up for the first time for alcohol. But Congratulations. I did it right away. Yeah. No, and it was like felt awful the next day and then and missed school. And I think my mom knew that I had. Well, yeah, she did know. She said something to my brother, but never confronted Not me. Not to the one and a half year old brother. No, the older brother. Right, right, right. And... um. Yeah, and then I didn't drink again really much like through high school and then until I was probably 20. So so what propelled you when you saw the liquor and your mom was like making the cake or she had left or whatever it is, what propelled you to go, I'm going to try that? Curiosity. 
Uh-huh. Like, no, yeah, there wasn't, it was a split, it was a very just split second, oh, I should try that. Like, I don't recall being intrigued with it before, before that, that point. And when you were drinking it, were you thinking, this is really bad. Oh, Why it tasted horrible. But emotionally, too, were you oh. thinking, God, you know, what's wrong with me? I'm 12 years old, and why am I doing this? No. Yeah. It just, it was, it instantly clicked, but then I didn't do it again for a long time. Did it feel good? Did it, did you go, oh, this is the elixir I've been waiting for? It wasn't that extreme of like, I suddenly felt free. It felt good enough to like keep doing it and getting, keep having a little bit more and Mm -hmm. more, but it wasn't, um, it didn't start the craving of like, I have to have this again tomorrow. I have, my life didn't shift at that point. And then it was years before you yeah. drank again. Yeah. So all through high school you did it? Through high school. I mean, I'd go to high school parties and then I would um, often not, like I'd be at parties and not drink mm-hmm. at parties. Mm-hmm. I have control issues. So if mm-hmm. other people are drunk and out of control, I get nervous. And so like I'm fine. I was fine if I was out of control, but I don't like to be out of control if other people are out of control with drinking. So like Ooh. parties were not a safe place for me to drink and be out of control. Okay, wait, wait. So you're fine with being out of control alone is mm-hmm. what you're saying. Yes. But or if somebody else is sober and in control. But I like designated so myself as the like sober Okay, so control somebody person. has to be fine. Manage, yes. That is so interesting because you can't always control it. You know, you don't know for a fact that someone else is going to stay sober while you drink. Right, but if I, so there are all throughout my drinking career when there were people that were drinking... And like I could watch other people starting to get out of control, I'd start cutting back because I couldn't, even in the like final weeks of drinking, right? in the final, like right before I got busted, there was like a, I remember being like, everyone else is getting a little out of hand. I'm going to stop. And that is... um what I mean, drinking alcoholically is isolating anyway, but that is very much an isolating yeah. way to do it. So you were guaranteed to be isolated when people were drinking or when you were. Right. So it was always just your thing. Yeah. And um, and so then how did it progress? So it progressed when I was um, probably about, Um, 19 or 20 and I started working in a brew pub and that was definitely like a drinking culture and then it really progressed to like wanting to drink and really that wanting to drink daily and wanting to drink to like feel like I fit in and and that's when it really was like my social aid and lubricant to Mm -hmm. to drink right around 20 and um and I met my husband right before I turned 21 Mm -hmm. And then it just became like the, well, you know, we just drink, have a couple, like it was, oh, I drink a couple drinks every night, but really it was more like two plus, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, um, it I always tried to shoot for two and it was always wanting more, but I was a very good, I managed it for a long time of Mm -hmm. not comfortably, but just like wanting to be socially acceptable of drinking that way. And I feel like if I hadn't had traumatic experiences in my life, I probably would have managed that drinking for a long time and maybe had waited to be in like my 60s before I got sober, but and like that it would have really become a problem. But having in like a four year period, having some traumatic experiences happen in my life really 
helped. Expedited, yeah. yeah, it was like a four-year window of just like shot that alcoholism like out the cannon. Yeah, they call it taking the e-ticket into yeah. um, into recovery. Yeah. You know, which is like, I guess, a Disneyland like fast thing. <laughs> I always think that cocaine was my e-ticket. Mm-hmm. But so did you drive drunk, though? Um, in the end, I would, yeah. I mean, that's always what I thought. Well, if it hadn't been for cocaine, it probably would have been a drunk driving accident right. that did it, which is how lucky right. that it wasn't that. Yeah. So let's talk about that traumatic four-year period. So your husband was, first your husband was No. Oh. First, so I was um, pregnant, mm-hmm. and my dad committed suicide. He... Um, I knew he was struggling and like I'd found out a week before that he was really having a tough time. And then he, um, I just had a sheriff show up at my door and say, um, your dad's killed himself. And I was like right around the midpoint of my pregnancy. Wow. And so obviously I was pregnant. Um, and I didn't go straight to drinking alcoholically with that one. I did, um, that first night that I found out I did have a small glass of wine just to take I was in such a state of shock that I was worried what I was, what my body was going to do to the baby right, right. with that kind of intense emotion. And I um, had like a half a glass of wine just to kind of calm down and, um, but really didn't drink throughout that pregnancy. And then, um, but then after becoming a mother, that was, I mean, I love my child, but it, in a way it was a traumatic experience for me becoming a mother as well. Tell me why. Because I have always wanted to be a mother my whole life. And the expectations that I had on myself for like, oh, I'm going to be such this like calm, serene, like just earth mother full of love, like, and, um, and I've never been that in touch with anger in mm-hmm. my whole life. And then I was, I felt like I just became this like angry, um, like my child could just push the rage buttons in me. And so I would feel like I wouldn't handle situations well, get angry. And then I would um, beat myself up for the way I was acting as a parent and then drink over that like mm-hmm. over the guilt and the shame about mm-hmm. um and you know and not, I never hurt my child I never like I was I didn't neglect my child but it just the mental insanity that motherhood brought me to with just that I thought I could be this perfect so you do you think it was a combination of expectations hormonal shifts and then possibly a reaction to what had happened with your dad Yeah, and I don't think I processed what had happened with my dad because I was pregnant and it was just like I shut down during the whole pregnancy around all that. So I still had to process um, everything with my dad and um, yeah, and just and having this little being need everything from you like 24 seven, it's it's intense and, Mm -hmm. you know, and lack of sleep and it just um, it's a when did that uh, when did that sort of calm down? motherhood yeah the anger and the emotional reaction still working on it she's 10 (laughs) and um and so with in terms of your dad um how obviously it's a shocking experience but how shocking was it had you always known he'd struggled I always knew so he 
I knew he struggled with alcohol. Um, and then I, I never trusted that he was ever like sober or, and I, even as a little kid was like worried that he was always high or smoking pot. And, um, I mean, he would going from Northern California to Southern California, he would like have a beer, like mm-hmm. driving that eight hour drive or, you know, I don't know how many beers, but it was like, he was always a drinker mm-hmm. after that, those early years. And then, um, and so then his life just kind of started to fall apart of like not being able to find a job and having no, like having burned through all his money and having no money. And he just, and he was drinking excessively and it was, a shock in that final week of like how low he had gotten but I did have the heads up from my aunt like a week or two before he did kill himself that how bad things had gotten so Mm. thankfully I had that so it wasn't just like oh I just talked to him a while ago and had no idea he was even struggling that much so but still even when your aunt told you that did you really think it would end up like that no I had no idea that he would kill himself and it was definitely at that point when he was still alive, um, myself and my brother and my mom and my aunt, we were all talking about how like, you know, he's made his own bed and he, and we, there was already anger mm-hmm. with the situation that he was in. He had gotten himself in that situation right. and y- you need to just like suck it up cupcake and like deal with, yeah. deal with it and like, and stop being right. self-pity or whatever Yes, it is. exactly. And so, but I did not ever worry that he would kill himself yeah so and I don't think he planned it far in advance it was just a an extreme bottom for him of like he was kicked out of his girlfriend's house and then he was he'd hit some other car and had no insurance and then he um, got a DUI and spent the night in jail and just and he had to like move all of his stuff he just like his world was Right. And a wreck. Yes. Yeah. And he just, and I, it was a moment of desperation and he chose, you know, just made that split second. And, um, and so just as you're dealing with that, let's talk about what happened with your husband. So, yeah, that was, um, in 2007 and then in 2010, um, have a now almost three year old and, my husband was in a bicycle accident and had a traumatic brain injury. Um, nearly didn't survive that. And also something where your husband goes out for a bike ride. Yeah, Clearly he, you didn't think that could right. end up being Yeah, I didn't even tragic. know he was out on a bike ride. Wait, is he a, but he was a bicyclist. Yeah, he, he, would yeah would, he was on a, his road bike and just, yeah, out super active husband yes and um and what happened you got a call the emergency room called me and said you know is this jenna hutt and which is the same thing the sheriff had asked me when and how many years later um three years later Mm -hmm. and they said oh you know you are hard to get a hold of your husband it was in a bicycle accident and he was um when the paramedics got to him he was unconscious and not breathing very well on his own and he um you know we have him here at the er and they're 
they're in, he's in, you know, getting a scan right now and they're checking for brain activity. And then I start asking questions and he said, I'm sorry, you have to call back and talk to a nurse. You couldn't even go there? Well, just to get more information, right. I had to call the hospital back to right. talk Who to somebody. Who was he then? I have no idea. Wow, okay. Yeah. It was not, um, yeah, it's not a good call. But so I had to, um, and there were a lot of, there was a lot of like misinformation in that call. Oh my God. But um, where they weren't checking for brain activity, but they were checking for brain injury. But so anyways, it was, yeah, it was a, there were hours where I thought he might just be brain dead. So you, you can't even call the nurse right away? So I called back the hospital and I talked to somebody and basically was like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, yeah. And I have a two-year-old. Do I bring her? You know, just somebody tell me what to do. And she said, you know, he's unconscious, but sometimes that can help. Like, just basically, like, get here. There's nothing. With the, with the child. Yeah. So you go rushing over to the hospital. Yep. And I called my mom and and word started to kind of spread. And so the I get to the hospital and my mom is there with her husband and then my ex-stepdad have a very complicated family. Mm -hmm. But then um, and so we were meeting in a side room with a doctor and there we're in a small town in the southwest corner of Florida or mm -hmm. not Florida of California. And Wow. I'm in California now. <laughs> what was the Colorado? Oh, 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 okay. So sorry. Okay, so Colorado, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so they wanted to fly him to Denver because he needed a major hospital. And he's out. So you're standing at his bed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I went. I, we when we were talking with the doctor, we were in a side room. But when I went in to see him by myself, I didn't take my daughter in mm -hmm. to see him just because that seemed too intense for a two year old. Yeah. To, and that was weird. It just was like my husband's body but not mm. my husband and just you know like in a neck brace and like breathing devices and just like it was pretty it didn't feel like him and, at all and then he went to Den they took him to Denver I, I flew then, with him to Denver mm -hmm. I handed off my two-year-old to my mom mm -hmm. and just said you know you're gonna spend the night at grandma's and mm -hmm. um I didn't really tell her much and got on the medical flight and flew to Denver it's an hour flight mm -hmm. um and so he was in the back unconscious with a couple nurses and um I just sat on the plane and got up to Denver and he and then we went to the emergency room up there and he was um so I'm completely by myself and he's the triage like so many people around him like checking assessing all of his wounds and where he's at and just sitting there like you know his feet were like yellow and he just it was like he was shaking or something just very scary mm -hmm. and um hospital chaplain comes up to me and is like what are your religious preferences oh which God. to me means yeah you know over. he's about to die yeah and um so long story short he spent two months up two months up in denver Mm -hmm. and went through a whole rehab hospital and um, ended up, you know, years, like, over a long period of time making a full recovery. But um, it was a long road, mm -hmm. like, of not knowing how much he was going to recover and, like, would I be his caregiver? 
would he have any functionality? You know, would he be able to go back to work? And it was um, very intense. So over that period of time and spending those two months in Denver, I used alcohol a lot to just check out myself. And then even when we were back home using alcohol to, um, because it took him a long time to gain back his functionality. And so it was like, well, he's half there. Right, right. So I get to be too. Yeah, I don't want to. And so what did your drinking, what was it like at that point? So it would be, you know, a couple glasses of wine in the afternoon when my daughter was napping to kind of check out. And then, and, and I, when my drinking was, I liked the constant buzz. Mm-hmm. So I like to um, just keep that buzz going. Like I, I, with the control issues, I getting right. really drunk didn't feel safe to me. But right. keeping that like little balance of a buzz which I feel like for a year for a few years I was really good at keeping it yeah a steady and then in the last year it was just like falling off a cliff and was that you just couldn't stop at that point or did your tolerance change the final year yeah um well it progressed to the point of you know then the like drinking all day and then into the night ended up being a lot of alcohol so then in the morning feeling bad mm-hmm. and then figuring out to have a drink in the morning to f- feel a little better and pick me up and then it just so then like really all day drinking mm-hmm. and it was then it got to the point of I so all that all day drinking my body would start to like reject alcohol mm-hmm. and I would get physically sick and throwing up so mm-hmm. there was in the end there was a lot of throwing up even though yeah. I missed it in the beginning yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you caught up yep yeah. and um but I was a secretive drinker mm-hmm. so everyone knew that I drank but nobody knew the extent of mm-hmm. what I drank so I kept my socially acceptable right. part public but then the all day drinking I hid that when people smell it on you at like 10 in the morning you know I don't know. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm sure some people did. Mm-hmm. I um, don't know if my Nobody husband's brain injury broke his nose for a few years. Right, <laughs> so right. Like did I mean? Did he just? Do you think willfully ignore? Yeah, I, I to this day don't really and, understand that one. And so then, what happened that got you busted? You recently wrote an essay about which you can yes. find on inrecovery.com. And it's called it's called a suitcase full of bottles. Empty bottles. So tell us what happened. So we were back east visiting his family, and um, and that was in the final year of my drinking, and I was a wreck. Mm-hmm. I was um, having panic attacks and anxiety and depression, and um, my like multiple days of being in bed and throwing up, which was from alcohol, but nobody, I wouldn't admit to any of that. Right. And um, then we, so we went on this trip back east and I had started with bringing like one bottle of vodka in my suitcase and... Big, big old bottle or airplane size? Big old bottle Mm -hmm. in a checked Mm -hmm. luggage. And then, well, the little travel shampoo bottles, those were always filled with Vodka. Vodka. Okay. Yeah. So my carry-on um, wow. liquids bag was 
usually mostly alcohol. So your hair was really dirty. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. And um, over the trip, I managed to acquire two more Mm -hmm. bottles of vodka. I was rarely by myself on that whole trip, but I managed to acquire two new ones, but I did not ever manage to get rid of any... Right. empty ones if you could get away to buy a bottle you couldn't get away to throw away a bottle well i wasn't thinking very okay, clearly yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. wasn't a dire situation yet and um in the final like the last two days of our trip um my husband went to i was sharing the suitcase with our daughter who was um you were sharing the suitcase well she was too young to yeah she was like six herself. and yeah and then um, he was helping her pick out an outfit to go out to Denver and she, um, and he found the three bottles. Yes. Two empty and one open and we're staying in a house with his family and he called me into the room and was basically like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Like, and I had no explanation, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing prepared. No. You know, it was... I being a secretive drinker was so intense of like that final year. I knew I had a problem. I knew alcohol was not serving me well. I didn't want to give it up, but I didn't know how to call attention to the fact that that's what was the cause of all my problems. And there was so much shame and so much, um, just built into my web of lies that it was, I, you didn't know a way out. I was stuck. Yeah. Did you, would you, uh, look up, uh, you know, recovery online, no. you did nothing no. to kind of... No, and I detoxed, I'd get sick enough several, in that final year, there were several times that I got sick enough, detoxed at home alone, like had, you know, would hear faint radios in the mm. background, like think I was losing my mind. Right. Would you know that you were detoxing? No, I just thought I was going insane. Wow. And, you know, in the, in that final year of drinking, like got to a point um, six months or over six months before I got sober, got to a point that I didn't want to be on the planet anymore. I didn't want to kill myself because of what I had gone through with my dad, but I was really willing for a bus to hit me or a mountain lion to eat me or just, um, and it, so yeah, I had got like I'd sober up for a week or not drink and then, um, start to feel a little better and then just be like oh I can Mm -hmm. have a glass of wine and you know that I know that one yeah yeah didn't work very well but um so no I didn't look into any kind of recovery or there was one friend that I had known for many years that I knew she had gotten sober Mm -hmm. I knew she didn't drink anymore and um so I get busted Mm -hmm. on the trip and then um, we still had a day and a half left mm-hmm. at that visit. We didn't. We didn't say anything yep. to anyone. We just um, acted normal. Yes, as normal as a intense situation as that can be. And then um, got home. Oh, I'd been to a psychiatrist before that trip Who because you died of. To? Yes, mm-hmm. I did not say any. He asked me if I had an addictive personality, and I said no. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and you just said I'm very depressed. I'm yeah, I'm panic depressed. Mm-hmm. Depressed and anxiety, panic attacks. So I got put on sertraline and Ativan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, did he sleep. say point blank, "Do you drink?" 
Yeah. And, and you, I said a little. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're on Ativan. I didn't know what the first med was. Um, it's basically the Zoloft. Okay. Yeah. Um, so an SSRI, mm-hmm. a, um, which a combines se- great with alcohol. Yeah. 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 Um, and a sedative. And then there was a third. And then, uh, the sleep. Uh, Ambien? Yeah. Okay. Ambien and Ativan. I did that combo too. Yeah. And I quickly stopped taking the Ambien because it gave me nightmares. Okay. And, but the Ativan was great. Did you know what? I was so like confused during those years that I kept getting Ativan and Ambien mixed up. Oh. Because they just both started with A. (laughs) And I remember a friend telling him that all I wanted for my birthday, let's say it was like my 27th birthday, I don't remember, was, um, was his Ativan pills. Anyway, he gave, yeah, I remember a birthday present was, it was the best birthday present I thought I'd right. ever gotten. Like in a, one of those little manila envelopes, he gave me like a whole wow. bunch of Ativan and I thought they were Ambien. Anyway, but they kind of did the same thing yeah, to me. Yeah, it but, helped me sleep. Yeah. Ativan definitely helped me sleep. Yeah. And he said, as long as you don't take it every night, it's yeah. okay. Like, so I would take it every other night. Okay, God. <laughs> like, you I'm would a role follower. <laughs> I know. You would obey, but like I'm not. such a contradiction. Right, yes. right. And um, the, so I get busted and then that, and there was like, so I had the shampoo bottles on the trip too. And mm-hmm. so it was, I get busted later that night. I'm like pouring the last of the vodka into like water bottles, shampoo bottles, like and stashing them wow. everywhere because I'm busted and this, my, the, the gig is up, but yeah. I'm not ready to give it up. Yeah. And then we, um, went, so then as we're packing up to leave, he's finding half of the stash. He's, you know, and also he was worried that last night of like, how much of this did you actually drink? Mm-hmm. Assuming that I drank it all rather than hiding more of it. But um, it was super intense that last trip. But then on the plane ride home, he like he had me to himself at that point. He was just like watching me like a hawk. There was I was not getting any alcohol mm-hmm. in that on that flight home. But thankfully, I took an Ativan mm-hmm. and and I didn't know anything about detoxing. And it, I mean, it was good that I took that out of van for right. the flight home because that's sometimes what they give you. Detox drug, yeah. Yeah, to help um, not go through DTs. Yeah. And um, get home late that night. I just went straight to bed and he cleared the whole house of alcohol when we got home. And I just was full of shame. Full, And I, you know, I was being exposed just felt so awful. Mm-hmm. And um, stayed sober for about eight days. Mm -hmm. And then he went off to be training for fire, the fire department on a Tuesday night, which he did every Tuesday night. And I, the thought popped into my head, Mm -hmm. like, I'll just get one of those little boxes of wine Mm -hmm. and I'll um, just have that while he's gone and he'll never know. And I drank about half of it and, um, didn't like the feeling mm. of being buzzed again, mm-hmm. but yet I finished. Yeah, finished the wine, and then um, went. You know, started. Well, I'll just buy one little box a day, and mm-hmm. like tried to to moderate for a week, and then it quickly just got back out of hand, and back to vodka, and back to like drinking to the point of passing out, and but then having to be like more open about it of like oops sorry I relapsed I drank and then how did you get sober so he was pushing me um, obviously to get sober Mm -hmm. and also since I was secretive to get to be open 
to mm-hmm. tell all my friends, mm-hmm. my family, everyone, mm-hmm. which I would do by um, drinking. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to get drunk to tell people I need to quit drinking. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty much everyone I talked to was super supportive. Well, uh, no, sorry. Everyone I talked to was super supportive mm-hmm. and just like, okay, like right. there was no judgment. Um, I saved the biggest, scariest one for last, which was my mom. Mm-hmm. My mom um, hasn't drank for like 20 years and I was very afraid to tell her. Mm-hmm. I had always felt that she was judging my drinking when I was drinking mm-hmm. because she didn't drink. And um, so I was afraid to tell her and we went out to lunch. I drank before lunch. Mm-hmm. We sat down for lunch and I said, um, Mom, I think I need to quit drinking and she just reached across the table and she grabbed my hand and she just said, are you ready? Mm. And I said, I don't know. And I was able to be honest and she didn't freak out. She just like, it was full on love, mm-hmm. like from her and just like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, and, and she told me that I was already stronger than my dad mm-hmm. because he wasn't even able to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And um, I went home you know I told my husband that I had told my mom and he was happy that I had done that and I but I went home and drank to the point of passing out mm-hmm. that night or evening afternoon and um thought I had hid my bottle really well mm-hmm. and woke up early the next morning severely hungover and needing a drink searching for that bottle and could not find it Okay, and so let's get you sober. So then how did you ultimately get sober? So I um, went and stayed at my mom's house yep. for about a week mm-hmm. and just kind of broke up the routines and the habits and stayed with her and let her take care of me. And so that was my little mm-hmm. um, rehab, rehab. Yeah. <laughs> and got sober and... Um, started going to meetings mm-hmm. and I called that friend that I knew mm-hmm. was sober and just and did what I didn't want to do which mm-hmm. was go to meetings mm-hmm. and and just dove in mm-hmm. like it I was so afraid to like go through the hangover and feel that and then once I got through that I just it was my spiritual experience of just like accepting and like okay I that three-week window was like okay I really can't manage this it and then and then did the desire to drink go away it um it did it would pop up of like oh i i should you know i could drink tonight and it's Mm -hmm. but it it never there weren't really like intense cravings once i got busted i got taken off ativan so i was still on the antidepressant but i also got put on gabapentin Mm -hmm. and that um did help with the cravings I think so. Yeah. And that um, was useful for me. Um, and I took it as directed. And it was like, in the evening, it was like having a half a glass of wine of just taking that edge off mm-hmm. of like, it would help me relax mm-hmm. in the evening. So that mm-hmm. really helped in the beginning of my recovery. Wow. And you could feel it. Mm-hmm. And um, and so how would you say your life has changed since you've been sober? So I have... Um, definitely developed like my spiritual side a lot I never like had I always was a seeker Mm -hmm. and it definitely like getting sober and um so I didn't have any resistance to a Mm -hmm. spiritual program but it just um 
and being able to define it however I want to and just um, obviously being sober versus drinking, like trying to find some spirituality, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Being yeah. sober to yeah. find that. And I, um, it didn't turn me into a perfect person to mm-hmm. get sober, you mm-hmm. know, still strive, still struggling and striving with that, like, oh, I should be perfect mom or you know be able like not get angry or not get Mm -hmm. upset it's um but just learning to be kinder Mm -hmm. with myself and then in this last year like figuring out um what what do I like who Mm -hmm. am I Mm -hmm. now that I'm sober because so much of my life was all and then drinking helped that was like who do other people want me to be Mm. and now I'm finally like who do I want to be Mm -hmm. and so this like wait, I want to be creative. I want to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to share my story to help others, whether it's like being a family member of someone who's had a family member commit suicide or um, a spouse or a loved one go through like a near-death and accident. So and so let's experience. talk about your book then. What's the yeah. title that we've settled on? The title right now is Broken Brains. And there's a good subtitle, right? Yeah suicide ex injury recovery i like it i like it and um and so your process has been you knew you wanted to do that but you didn't know how you wanted to i do wanted it. to write i've always since i did the blog about my husband's traumatic brain injury i have wanted to turn that into a book mm-hmm. and that was all i wanted to do right and then i talked to you and i told you some of the things that had happened to me and you said you have a full memoir yeah. in there and yeah. i was so afraid to be public about my recovery mm-hmm. And then that first essay that I wrote Mm -hmm. about the four M's that keep me sober, Mm -hmm. that, um, so I wrote that and got that published and I put that on Facebook and it was like my coming out story and it felt amazing and nobody, and it was just met with like, I'm so proud of you and like, good job. And there wasn't like the perception I had about like being open about my sobriety did not happen at all. I know it's so funny how we think that everybody's going to meet it with judgment right and really nobody does right I mean in my experience I don't know I can't speak yeah and else. I've always believed in like okay being open about it is gonna ha- maybe help somebody else down the line absolutely of um finding recovery but yet I was so fearful about doing that myself and yeah it just it was like ripping the band-aid off and it felt so good and it then did. By taking that Band-Aid off, it's like healed me at a whole nother level. I love that. To be that open about it. And just all this writing yeah. about all these experiences has been a whole nother level of healing. It is interesting to me, you know, my entire philosophy. I've always sort of written to feel better, right. starting with journals when right. I was whatever age I was. And so that's why program is, it was always such a natural for me because right. that's how I process anyway. And I'm a big fan of therapy and all of that stuff. But it is a different way of healing. And it's the combination of making it to me kind of a story, not just a journal, and then sharing it. Right. There's something about that. Yeah, putting it out there. And yeah, it's a, it's really powerful. The, um, you know, because we do a storytelling show here in L.A. where... I always, and I'm actually teaching at a rehab. I just started this last weekend teaching inpatients 
how to write essays and oh, then wow. ultimately how to perform them. And so they are so fresh in the journey. And so having people laugh live, so it's like getting this immediate response and they're laughing with identification. I, I find it to be a whole new level of healing. And my hope is that it gets incorporated into all treatment centers yeah. at a certain point. Absolutely. Be really cool. So Jenna, I mean that we gotta we gotta sort of wrap up, but this has been so cool. And I didn't know that it was this big liberation for you to post oh, it. Yeah. I, mean, I think you emailed me that, but I didn't you know, I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah, she's being nice or whatever. No, it was it's been yeah, I mean even with the whole book proposal you know, I, I'm going to have a completed book proposal. I'm yep. going to turn that in. That's absolutely going to happen. But it's like, I know, and who knows what will come after that. But it's just been such a healing process for me to just be in this program and to, to be in your writing program and to write about this and put it out there and to be finding this creativity of myself. It's just, uh, it's so powerful. Oh, that makes me so happy. So if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? So I'd say the best place to start is my website. It's mm -hmm. jennahut.com. Two N's, two T's. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And I am on, I am Jenna Hutt on all of the social media. So I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram as Jenna Hutt. And you can, people can see Jenna's essays on both Addiction Unscripted and in recovery.com. Yes, and I have links to those on my website as well. So it's all there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank um, you for truly. having me. And um, you, listener, have been listening to, well, let's hope there's more than one of you. You, listeners, have been listening to Recover Girl podcast all about addiction recovery and today very much about creativity and writing. Again, if you want to find out more about this podcast, go to recovergirlpod.com. If you want to give us a review or subscribe, go to iTunes. And if you want to find out more about this coaching program that Jenna Hutt has found to be a new level of healing, which just makes me so happy, go to annadavidcoaching.com. And that is it. We'll see you next time.